This probably will not come as a surprise to you, but when I was a kid growing up about the age of these boys up here, my mouth used to get me in trouble with my mother. My mother adopted a form of torture that is not even exercised today in Guantanamo Bay as a response. And that is she would wash my mouth out with soap. If you have never had your mouth washed out with soap, see me afterwards. <laughs> my mother is watching this. This is a satellite network. We're on three satellite networks. And my mother in Banning, California is watching this right now. I'm telling you this story because I hope she won't want to wash my mouth out after we begin this sermon. I'm going to use a word right now that is not used in polite conversation or genteel company. It's a very strong word, and we find it in a sentence making a very strong point. The sentence belongs to E.W. Mounder. In it, he refers to what he calls the bastard science. That was the word. According to the dictionary, Bastard describes, and I'm quoting now, any irregular, inferior, illegitimate, or counterfeit thing, end quote. So a bastard science would be an illegitimate or counterfeit, a fake science. And what would that be? Well, E.W. Mounder, I'll quote the sentence here, he's writing of, quote, the bastard science which has always tried parasite-like to suck its life from astronomy, end quote. Now, everybody knows what astronomy is. Astronomy is the study of the astros. That's the Greek word for stars. Some of you are taking astronomy right now in this university. But I predict there is nobody here today enrolled in astrology. You know why? Because it's a fake an illegitimate science that assigns psychic prophetic powers to the movement of the planets and the stars. So imagine my surprise to discover that this bastard science of astrology lies at the heart of much of the confusion today over the Sabbath. Do you know that there's some people who believe that you can find astrology in the creation account in Genesis 1? I'm going to show this to you. Take a look at this. We've got to do some multitasking right now. So open your Bible to Genesis 1, page 1, if you use the Pew Bible. And I hope you'll follow along if you didn't bring your own Bible. But we're going to multitask. While you're finding that, take out your study guide, brand new study guide in your worship bulletin today. Take it out because I want to get both of these parallel tracks going right away. And your generation is brilliant at multitasking, so you're not having any problem with this. In fact, here's the third task. Hold your hand up if you don't have a study guide. Thank you, ushers, right now. I see hands Right through to the back, I see hands up in the balcony, maybe in the overflow chapel as well. Make sure that everybody today gets a study guide. And those of you who are joining us on television, we're honored to have you. This will be a fascinating study. You're going to want to have this study guide. Let me put our website on the screen for you. www.pmchurch.tv You're looking for the series called The Sabbath. This is part three of The Sabbath. The title of this teaching, The Legacy of the bastard science. When it says study guide right there, you click it, you have what we have, and then we can all go together. If you're listening on a podcast, watching on a DVD, all you have to do is hit pause and go to your computer, do the same thing. You'll be able to follow with us. 
All right. Let's just let's just plunge into this. I want to make sure we get this uh, E.W. Maunder sentence down. So would you write it, please? Astrology is the bastard science which has always tried parasite like to suck its life from astronomy. All right. Maunder's words. Keep writing. Astrology lies at the heart of the confusion today over the Sabbath. So here's the question. Can you find astrology in the creation account in Genesis 1? Open your Bible to Genesis 1. You've already gotten there and I'm sitting up here talking. I haven't found it yet. Genesis 1, page 1 in your, in your uh, pew Bible. Same translation that I'll be reading from here, the New King James Version. Let's go to the fourth day of creation. All right, fourth day of creation. Drop down to verse 14. Genesis 1, verse 14. Then God said, day four of creation, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And boom, it was so. Verse 16. Then God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He, he made also the stars. Verse 17. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Finally, verse 19, so the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Now, astrologers have tried to justify their divination of the celestial bodies by the phrase there in verse 14. These shall be for signs and seasons. Ah, they said that's astrological signs. Are you serious? Let me disabuse you of that notion by showing you that quite to the contrary, what we have just read is a polemic against astrology. Watch this. Moses, who's writing. Please note, in fact, jot this down. God carefully avoids naming. Did you catch this? God carefully avoids naming the two most prominent celestial bodies to earth. That would be the sun and the moon. Is, it, is, is the word sun bad word? You get your mouth washed out? No, the moon isn't either. All the way, you'll find them all the way through the Bible. But here in the initial, in the beginning, Moses refers to them as the greater light that rules the day. And the lesser light that rules the night. No sun, no moon. Why? Because Moses has been schooled in Egypt. And Moses knows that in Egypt, they worship the sun god Ra. And Pharaoh is the son of the sun god. Pharaoh is the son of the, the incarnate son of the sun god. See, Moses says, no way. Clearly, we have an overt attempt to make certain that you cannot read the deification of celestial bodies into Holy Scripture. Certainly not into the creation account. So they're simply called the greater light for the day, the lesser light for the night. By the way, if you're not clear there, please note, God does not tolerate the deification of celestial bodies. And you get that sense because of the very strong language he uses in Holy Scripture. I'm going to have you look this up. Take, go, go to the book of Isaiah. You're in Isaiah and you need a page number here. That's page 416. I'm sorry, that's page 492. 492, Isaiah 47. Isaiah 47. Isaiah 47. This, this is fascinating. Now, this is God speaking in Isaiah 47, and he's speaking, as you'll notice. We'll start in verse 1. That's not where I want to go. Go quickly to the end of the chapter, but just get the feel for it in verse 1. Isaiah 47, verse 1, God is speaking. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. So let's be clear. God's, this is a judgment against Babylon. Virgin daughter of Babylon, you sit in the dust. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. God is saying, hey, listen, Babylon, listen to me. Read my lips. You are under judgment now. By the way, 
Because Isaiah 47 is a judgment against Babylon, you'll come to Babylon in the Apocalypse, Revelation chapter 18, and it heavily borrows the language of Isaiah 47. There's another Babylon at the end of time. But this is the ancient Babylon that God is speaking to through Isaiah. Go down to the end. Go down to verse 12 near the end of the chapter. God's still speaking to Babylon. Stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries. See, the Babylon has always been the seat of the occult. Sorceries. And the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you'll be able to profit. Perhaps you'll be able to prevail. Maybe your, maybe your witchcraft will get you out of this bind now. In fact, God says, I have another suggestion for you. Verse 13, you are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. You've been going everywhere for counsel. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers and the monthly prognosticators, those who study which house is the moon in, which house is the moon in, the the monthly prognosticators, let them stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. Behold, they, your astrologers shall be a stubble and the fire shall burn them. There is no question, ladies and gentlemen, and jot this down unequivocally. It is strong language here by which God condemns astrology. That is the human worship of celestial bodies. God says, nope, nope, cannot do it. Although truth be known, there's been somebody from the very beginning of earth time who's been drawn like a moth, like a moth to the flame. You ever seen a moth go to a flame? It's not smart enough. Stay away. Like a moth to the flame from the beginning, he has been drawn to the sun, to the sun. He's big on the sun. There's some mysterious attraction for him. Go to uh, chapter 14 here in Isaiah. Since we're there, Isaiah 14. Who is this somebody? Who from the beginning has been drawn to the sun. Isaiah 14. This would be page 469. Isaiah 14, verse 12. God is speaking to this being now. Who's this being? How are you fallen from heaven? O Lucifer, son of the morning. How are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? Verse 13, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. Notice the astrological language here. I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'm going up there. I will be like the most high. Somebody has a fascination with the sun, like a moth to the flame. And by the way, did you know this? Lucifer is not in the Bible. You can't find that name anywhere. That's not a Hebrew name. That's no name. That's from the Latin Vulgate. The actual Hebrew reads right here, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? The Hebrew reads, O shining one, which would be Lelel, son of the dawn, Ben Shachar. There is no Lucifer. Lucifer is Latin and it means light bear. Kind of close. But that little Latinized mistake is how we got the name Lucifer. The New American Standard Bible, jot this down. It translates that, translates that light, O Lucifer, son of the morning, this way. O star of the morning. That's what the Hebrew Hillel means. O star of the morning, son of the dawn. But isn't it amazing, ladies and gentlemen? Those are the titles. That is really the title for Christ in the New Testament. That belongs to Jesus. Watch this. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Jot it down. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Now, how can a star, what, what is there in my heart that would rise? Uh, look at this, Revelation chapter 22. Let's put it on the screen, please. Verse 16, I, Jesus, am the bright morning star. 
Isn't that amazing? By the way, I've got to just hit the pause button here. That, isn't, isn't that beautiful news about Christ being the morning star? There are times when it seems in your life that you are stuck in night forever. Jesus says, that's okay. Even in the darkest night, I appear. Do you know that Venus, the morning star, is seven times brighter than the brightest fixed star in our heavens? And that would be serious. Venus is seven times brighter. And Jesus says, I'll be that bright light in your dark night. And I will carry you all the way to the morning one day. Don't you give up. The night is not forever. I'm the morning star. Oh, that's beautiful. But isn't it something how Lucifer is called the morning star? Leading some scholars to conclude, and it, uh, you and I would certainly concur, write this down. This Lucifer, whoever he is, and you and I already know who he is. This Lucifer is clearly portrayed as, as a being who once occupied a high and exalted state in heaven next to Christ himself. Whoever he is, he's way up there. It's no wonder he was susceptible to the delusion of pride. I, oh, I could be God. I, I, I. And you know what? Every time Dwight gets stuck on that same solitary vowel. By the way, the letter I is the middle letter to Lucifer's name. I quickly checked my name to make sure it wasn't the middle. <laughs> it's not. There's only six letters in my name, so thank you. Those of you that are named Tim, it's the middle of your name. Or if you have the name Anita, it would be the middle of your name, too. <laughs> anyway, every time I get stuck, because I don't, it doesn't matter my name. Every time I get stuck on that solitary vowel, that first person pronoun, I am just like Lucifer. I am tempted to deify myself and assert myself just like Lucifer. Mm. Robert Odom, in this amazing bit of research he did in his book entitled Sunday in Roman Paganism. This is fascinating. He suggests that star of the morning that Lucifer is star of the morning actually can also refer to the greater light that rules the day. Because what's the star we have all day long? The, the star that we have is the sun, isn't it? Now, jot this down. This is in your study guide. Odom writing. It is not to be wondered at that Satan should choose the shining solar orb, the most glorious object in the sky to be the supreme symbol of paganism. End quote. Come on. What is paganism? What is paganism? If not at its heart, it's Satanism. And is not Satanism at the heart of all sun worship? But of course. Which explains why sun worship. This really, this, when you sit down and begin to just kind of brood over this, this is striking. Sun worship is riddled all through sacred history. Now I know why. Somebody thinks of himself as the sun. Job. I just read Job. I just got Job read through in January. And I never even caught this text. It took Robert Oden to point this out to me. Let me put this verse on the screen for you. This is Job. Uh, what's, the, what's the chapter? Uh, 31. Job 31, verse 26. Job is, is saying, look, if I have observed the sun when it shines or the moon moving in brightness. Look, if I've shown attention to these celestial bodies so that my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand. I'll explain that in a moment. This also would be an iniquity deserving of judgment, for I would have denied God who is above. This is fascinating. Do you know that the pagans who worship the sun, every time the sun came up, they went like this. They blew a kiss. Job says, have I kissed my hand toward the sun? They blew kisses to the sun. Isn't that amazing? Who do you suppose has been behind sun worship from the very beginning? If not Lucifer, star of the morning, sun of the dawn. Huh? 
Job is one of the oldest stories in Scripture. The Exodus happens after Job. I love the Exodus story. You know, you may not have ever known this about those ten plagues. Sometimes we get to re- get really mad at God. I mean, what kind of a God are you to use ten plagues and bang up the people like that? Listen to me carefully. Those ten plagues that, by, through which God liberates uh, Israel, those ten plagues are not against the Egyptians. In fact, in, in every plague that threatens human life, God gives a word. Hey, you can get out. This will not happen to you. Follow these directions. They're not, they're not directed against the Egyptians. Guess what? They are directed straight against the pantheon of Egypt's top gods. And the last two plagues are going for one main God. Watch this. Here's plague number nine. We'll put it on the screen. This will be Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the heaven, that there may be what? There may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Darkness which may even be felt. All right, Pharaoh, son of the sun god. Pharaoh, you want light? Ask your God. Ask him again. What's the matter with your God? Ask him again. God strikes. Ra. Isn't that amazing? And by the way, the plagues increase in their intensity. The final plague is number 10. Do you know what number 10 is against? The firstborn. Your firstborn, Pharaoh, the only way you will survive, your boy will survive, is if you put blood over your palace door. If you don't, and he didn't, you will lose the son of the son of the sun god. Now where is Ra? See, God wins. He tries to spare Egypt, the people, but they let him go. They let the people go. you got sun worship, ladies and gentlemen, from the get-go. And in fact, isn't this embarrassing? Not only does sun worship riddle pagan history, it riddles sacred community of faith history as well. They're just out of Egypt by days, maybe weeks. Remember that? And where's this Moses guy? Come on, where is he? He's gone up into that mountain. Aaron, make a God for us. And scholars now believe that the God Aaron fashioned out of their gold jewelry, the Egyptian bull, is a bull. And in Egypt, it was always bright yellow. And the name of the bull is Neh. The bull was a symbol of the sun god. Isn't that amazing? The children of the Most High God are dancing to the music of the sun god. Boy, I'd hate for that to happen again, wouldn't you? I'd hate for that to happen again, to get confused who our God is, even in the way we worship. Yeah, you have sun worship all the way through. And by the way, just before they go, just before they go into the promised land. uh, No, don't put this up yet. Just before they go into the promised land. You remember Balaam? Does that name ring a bell? Balaam? The, the false prophet, the true, but then the turned false prophet. Remember, he sent those pretty little Moabitess girls into the camp. They infiltrated the camp. They were all cult prostitutes for Baal worship, which is the worship of the sun god. And Israel, it says there in Numbers 25, verse 4, Israel bows down just before the promised land and worships the sun god. You can't believe it. Ladies and gentlemen, it's everywhere. And by the way, the top 1,000 leaders who are stricken in the judgment, you know what the instructions are? String them up and make sure the sun is shining on their bodies. There's deep irony. You have a battle from the beginning, from the fall of the human race. The one who says, I am the sun, and the God who says, I made the sun. You have an intense battle all the way through. You get to the books of the judges and the kings, and it's all over again. And I'm going to skip all the stories and end with one last story. And that's the one about a pagan princess. She was rather pretty, from what I hear. And Ahab, the, the, true, the king of the true Israel, fell in love with Jezebel. And when he married her, be careful, gentlemen, whom you marry. 
Be careful whom you marry. She brings with her a lot of baggage. By the way, let me flip that around just because this is a different age. Be careful, ladies, who you marry. Got more, got more amens from the ladies. Look at that. Be very careful because you bring your family's baggage with you. And Jezebel was from the cult of Baal. And she got the whole nation of Israel to be caught up in astolatry. Worship of the celestial bodies. And then you remember the day when that, uh, oh, I love this guy. Isn't he some bushy bearded, leather clad, comes slapping into the throne room of King Ahab. And he points his prophetic finger at Ahab. And he says, you want the son? You love the son, don't you? I'm going to give you three and a half years of nothing but sun. Not a drop of water until this place is a crisp dust bowl until you hear from me again. And Elijah's gone. And boom, Baal can't do a thing for three and a half years. And then there is that. Heart-stopping showdown. 850 priests of the sun god and one lonely prophet of the creator god. Hey, listen, guys. doesn't matter the numbers. If you're standing for Jesus, you just stand as one. Because one plus Jesus, you know the old line. You win. You win. Elijah. All right. I want to just share one text. This is our last text we'll look up. Ezekiel. This is near the end of the Old Testament. Sun worship is still going on. You're not going to believe this text is in your Bible. Ezekiel chapter 8. You will not... Oh, did I leave out? Let me, let me, let me just put up here uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19. Uh, thank you, Mezzanine, for going with us. Just before they went into the promised land, this is how serious God is about not getting involved in astrology. Watch this. This is God speaking. Just before the promised land. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the host of heaven, be very careful now, lest you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given. I put them up there for all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. They're there for your light, not your worship. So there's a strong word. But in, in spite of that strong word, here we, here we are in Ezekiel 8. And if you need a page number, that would be page 561 in your pew Bible. Look at this. Ezekiel 8, verse 15. Now, Ezekiel is already captive in Babylon. And God says, boy, you're not going to believe what's happening back at home. I'm going to give you a series of insights. This is one of those insights. This is a climaxing insight he's given as to what's going on in his hometown. Verse 15. Then he, the Spirit of God, said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Hey, hey, turn again. I'm going to show you one thing that's even a greater abomination. Look at this. Verse 16. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the church of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And they were worshiping the sun toward the east. In the church, they're worshiping the sun. That's one of the heartbreaking lines of the Old Testament. They're worshiping the sun. Apparently, apparently sun worship has that strong and magnetic an appeal. Even within the community of faith, we can be led to worship the sun. You say, hey, come on, Dwight, please. I mean, you started off talking about sun worship. You talked about sun worship and astrology, and you said this has something to do with the Sabbath. I don't see the connection. Okay, here it comes right now. Enter now the seven-day week. You understand this, don't you? That the Hebrew record of creation is the oldest extant record we have for the origin of the septenary or seven-day week. 
It's the oldest record we have in all human literature. This is it. And from the creation account onward, did you know this? From creation all the way through the New Testament, the Hebrews never named their days. It's first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, seventh day. Oh, seventh day would be the exception. The one day that God himself named, they didn't name it. God says this seventh day, we're calling it the Sabbath. No other names. And that's why chiseled into the granite of the Decalogue were these words. You remember them, Exodus 20, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. Proper name. This is my Sabbath. The Sabbath of the Lord your God. Why? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. End quote. Hey guys, listen, listen. From our primeval beginnings, there has always been a sacred bond between the septenary cycle, the seven-day week, and the seventh day. They have been bound together just like this. In the words of Robert Odom, get this down, this is something. Uh, it's in your study guide. The week of seven days is not a natural division of time and is not related to the movements of any of the heavenly bodies. Oh, let's hit the pause button right there. Okay, let's do this. Every year, something in our solar system goes like this. It takes one year to do it. What is happening? Come on, you scientists. What's happening every year? The earth goes where? Once around the sun. Okay? Very good. Every month, something goes around. Every month, something goes around. Right? Right? Isn't it right? It's 28 days, but every month, the moon goes around. Listen. Every 24 hours, every 24 hours, something turns on its axis. What's that? The earth. The earth. 24-hour day. Every seven days. All right. Every seven days. Now, what's the cycle? Every seven days, what goes around? Come on, you get it. Every seven days, what goes around? The answer is absolutely nothing. <laughs> nothing. You can point to the day, you can point to the month, you can point to the year and say, oh, we got it naturally. There's one cycle of human time that did not come naturally. It came supernaturally. It's the gift of the septenary week. The seven-day week. Proof. Philosophers of time do not know how to explain the seven-day week. See, we got it. Yeah, we did. Now, that's, a, that's Robert Odom's point. Keep going here. The week of seven days is not a natural division of time and is not related to the movements of any of the heavenly bodies. The creation record of Genesis, the Decalogue, and the Mosaic Law clearly show that it was originally a divinely established institution and is a, and I like this, is a twin sister of the Sabbath. You know what that means? They're twins. The seven-day week and the seventh-day Sabbath. They go just like two twins. You know what that means? Jot it down. The only reason for the septenary for the seven-day week was so that the human race might keep track of the seventh-day Sabbath and their weekly appointment with the Creator. God didn't need a week. He didn't need a week. The only reason we have a week so that you can keep track. Every seven days, you come back to me. Every seven days, it's you and me. You and me, friend. Just you and me. I'll make sure you'll never miss it. I'll put us on a seven-day cycle. Can't go to anywhere in the universe to prove this one. I gave it to you. See, they're twins. Where did it come from? Exodus 20, verse 10. For the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Now, I need you to really start thinking with me. Really, now. Can you now understand? Why, if you were Lucifer, thank God we are not. 
But if you were Lucifer, can you understand, you and I, if we were he, why, if you were Lucifer and in rebellion against the Creator, and you were hell-bent on securing the adoration, the allegiance, and the worship of the human race, can you not understand that you would mark your diabolical sights on the twin gifts? You would go for the weak to kill the day. If you can kill the weak, you got the day. The one reminder the human race has that it has come supernaturally from the hand of the Almighty Creator. Kill the weak so you can kill the day. Enter now, not the seven-day week, enter now the astrological week of the Chaldean or Babylonian astrology that was eventually embraced by the Romans, where the order is changed and... Hey, this would really throw them off. Instead of having a day that reminds you of the Creator, what if we took all seven days and turned every day into a day of honor to another celestial God? We'll make the planetary gods the heroes of the seven days. You'd have to be pretty brilliant and pretty desperate to secure the worship that belongs only to the Creator by coming up with a devilish strategy like that. So what do we have now? We have, we have a new order. The order's been changed and names have been inserted. The names of the seven celestial bodies the ancients worship. Let's put them up. Day one, Saturn Day. That was the first day. I'll show you in a moment how it got changed. But that was the order. Day, day one, Saturn Day. Day two, Sunday. Day three, Moon Day. Day four, Mars. You say, hey, Dwight, it doesn't sound like Tuesday doesn't sound like Mars. Any English dictionary, you look up Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and you find out the Latin equivalent, and you will discover they are all named after gods. All of them after planetary gods. So you got Mars Day, Day 4. Day 5, Mercury Day. Day 6, Jupiter Day. Day 7, Venus Day. Every day for another god. Won't have to worry about that creator around this here parts. The astrological week of the bastard science. Who do you suppose was the dark mind behind that creation? Whose agenda was it to obliterate the septenary reminder of the creator of the heavens and the earth? Enter now, finally, the wily pagan Roman emperor named Constantine. You may have grown up believing that Constantine was some sort of hero. I did. I mean, didn't, isn't, isn't this the Roman general to become emperor who one morning before battle in 312 A.D. is having a vision and whoo, he sees a cross and then he hears a voice that says, by this sign you shall conquer. Yep, that's the same Constantine. Oh, by the way, a little bit of a revision of history since we found out through Eusebius that actually that very morning when Constantine was praying and getting that vision, he was praying to the rising sun. He wasn't praying to the Most High God. Yeah, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Wasn't, wasn't Constantine the one who converted to Christianity? And then he painted the Greek letters, the key, which looks like an X, and then the Rho, which looks like a capital P, on all their shields. Wasn't that? Yep, that was Constantine, all right. But guess what we found out now? We've discovered that, in fact, those two letters were heathen initials used long before Christianity as a symbol of the sun. We've kind of gotten real excited about having Constantine as a Christian. Turns out he's a sun worshiper. You know what the family god of Constantine was? Apollo. You know who Apollo is? He's the, he is the form of the old Roman god, Saul. You ever say solar for the sun? Saul, S-O-L. And all the Caesars worshiped the Saul. Constantine. 
was a high priest for a solar religion, for the worship of the sun. Yeah, but come on. Come on, Pastor. Didn't Constantine, wasn't he the one that chaired the gathering of the bishops and the delegates of Christianity from across the far-flung empire as they gathered in that mighty church council, 325 A.D., the Council of Nicaea? Yep, that's the same one. But guess what? While he's chairing that meeting, he is bearing upon himself the title Pontifex Maximus. The pagan title for Roman emperors is the head of the cult of the invincible sun. Guys, it's sun worship all the way through. Leading Edward Gibbon, the great historian Edward Gibbon in his celebrated book, the, the volumes, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. These are his words, put it on the screen for you. As he, Constantine, gradually advanced in the knowledge of the truth, he proportionately declined in the practice of virtue. And the same year of his reign in which he convened the Council of Nice, or we'd say Nicaea, was polluted by the execution or rather murder. He murdered his eldest son. He felt so threatened to the throne. This is the same, this is the same Constantine. Constantine may have converted to Christianity, jot this down, but historians rightfully consider it a conversion of convenience. He was brilliant as a politician, which, by the way, explains his most infamous or famous, depending upon your perspective, imperial decree. The first civil Sunday law in history, March 7, 321 A.D. That Sunday law begins with these words. On the venerable, you got, got it in your study guide, on the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in cities rest and let all workshops be closed. And ladies and gentlemen, with that single sentence, Constantine, with wily political savvy, blends the septenary cycles of time in his empire. He takes the astrological week of the pagans and he takes the biblical week of the Christians and he makes them one. I'll, take the, I'll keep the planetary gods for the names, but I'll use the order. And now Saturn day will be seven instead of one. And I will make Sunday the greatest day of the week. Thus officially adopting the week into the Roman civil calendar and by edict declaring for the first time in history the pagan name Dies Solus, Solus, the day of the sun, to be the legal name of the first day. And so tomorrow, when you say today is Sunday, you can thank Constantine for that ability. He's the one. Brilliant. Brilliant. But jot this down. Not only did he... Declare the venerable day of the sun to now be the first day of the week. Get this. He also mandated this new pagan Christian veneration to be a day of rest for everybody. Have mercy. And the rest is history. Two triumphing historic Geniuses, Jot them down. The genius of Constantine, who united both church and state in a marriage of convenience through the compromise of truth. And the genius of Lucifer, who with his bastard science created his own counterfeit twins, the astrological week and the day of the sun. Thus replacing the creator with, his own, with Lucifer's own deified self and the seventh day Sabbath of the creator with the first day, Sunday of Lucifer. I am the sun and I am king of this earth. And that will be my day. Sunday is Lucifer's day. And the rest is history. A history, by the way. Hey, hold on, hold on now. Come on, come on, come on, come on. A history that might yet be mended by a people raised up by God for such a time as this. I don't know what you want to call them. 
I don't know what to call them. Let's just, let's just agree on this. We'll call them God's Seventh-day Sabbath people. Let's just call them that. God's Seventh-day Sabbath people who cherish His friendship above all else in life and who honor His day above all other days in time. Let's just call them God's Seventh-day Sabbath people who choose to be loyal to the Creator and His creation no matter the popular culture, no matter the unpopularity of obedience to the Fourth Commandment. We'll just call them God's Seventh-day Sabbath people who might even yet by their faithful witness be led by God to bring forth a generation to reject Lucifer's counterfeit dominion. You were born accidentally for this time, my friend. You were born for a reason. It, history can still get mended. We'll call them God's Seventh-day Sabbath people who one day will refuse to bow to the edict of church, a united church and state. For we shall yet hear from a new Constantine. Trust me, we're going to hear from a new Constantine one day. And it is that reality and prospect that compels me now to end these moments together with this appeal. Do you understand? Did you listen to my friend Vern Alger? Do you understand that there are forces today in both the government and society that are seeking to blend church and state? Do you understand that? Now, I know that you and I believe in the separation of church and state as our founding fathers did. But we're in a political season now and you're hearing all kinds of new notions. Constantine's legacy, the union of church and state, I need to remind you, is a tragic legacy. Because you know what? You know who wants you, you know who wants the union? The state doesn't want the union. It's the church that wants the union. Why does the church want the union? Because if, when the church unites with the state, it's always this way. The state becomes the enforcing arm of the church. That's all the church wants. We need somebody to make everybody go with us. That's it. You think the church is enamored with the state? Are you kidding? We got more power. I got more, I got more in my army than you have in yours. And it's true. Ladies and gentlemen, Constant, the Constantinian... It not only destroys the church and the state, but it destroys all the innocent people in between. This summer, I went with the architects. I see some of the architects here. I went with the architects. Where did we go? We went to Italy. We went into those green alpine valleys, and we stood where the Waldenses once stood. Do you know what the cost was to stand as the loyalist to the Creator? Do you know what the cost was then? It's a high cost. I'm warning you. It's not a pretty picture when the new Constantine comes. He's saying, Dwight, what are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about, you know what? We ought to seize this moment as this generation. We ought to seize the moment and appeal in the highest judicial and legislative circles in America. We ought to appeal to our leaders to maintain the separation of church and state. One day it's going to be over. I understand that. And when it's over, listen to me carefully. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. But I promise you that when church and state unite as they will one day, an apocalyptic prophecy assures us it'll happen all over again. When they unite, the very, the very fruit of that union will be the same as with Constantine. The day of the sun will be codified for the human race. You just watch. It always happens. In the history of Christendom, when church and state unite, state becomes the power to enforce the church. What shall we do? Two responses. Response number one, stand tall. Stand tall 
as a child of the Creator. Why don't you go around and apologize? Well, you know, can, can, can you get together with us? No, actually, uh, I'm sorry, but I'm kind of preoccupied that day. Don't, don't, don't apologize. Say, I'm, I, I'm the child of, a, of the Creator, and uh, no, I have that day. I have that day with another friend, my forever friend. You never apologize. Never, never, never apologize for standing up for the Creator. That's why you're here. He needed you for this hour. There's going to be a generation that will, tur- that will mend history. And you're part of it. So number one, stand tall for the Creator. And number two, invest what you have now to advance the cause of liberty on earth. Invest what you have now to advance the cause of liberty on earth.